Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. We are starting our second season, and so we hope you know know by now (laughs) there will be spoilers for everything. No book, no TV show is safe. My name is JJ. My name is Anjali. I'm Kat. And today's topic is Zoya. You know, we like to start with all these fun facts, and I want to switch up the order this time and start with a question for you, Kat, about why we haven't done this episode until now. This is one where every time it comes up as potentially the next episode, you've been saying, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Why don't we do this instead? So (laughs) I, I, I don't even know why. So why is that? So... You know, the first part of the answer is we had to do the reread of the second duology first because she's such a prominent, if not the most prominent character of that, that I felt like I needed the refresh. But then secondly, she's at least top two favorite characters of the entire Grishaverse. So I had to feel emotionally ready because I think you two are big Alina stands and I'm a Zoya stan. And I actually think that... Um... Hey now, I'm a Nina stan, just FYI. <laughs> So Nina is the other kind of top two one for me. I, I felt like I needed to be emotionally ready to really get into why Zoya is an incredible character. Are, are you ready now? I hope so. All right. Maybe. I'm ready. I'm excited. So name fun fact is Zoya is a variant of Zoe, which means life. To step on JJ's toes a little bit, I almost considered naming my daughter Zoya. So I know it also has a specific meaning in Urdu and Arabic, and it can mean love and loving and caring, which I think is kind of more appropriate for Zoya in some ways. I think it's almost like a hidden aspect of her, but one that probably defines her pretty well. Yeah, I think the life meaning seems very arbitrary right up until the end of Rule of Wolves, where she's apparently now immortal or immortal adjacent. I don't exactly believe that was the plan from the very beginning, but the loving works very nicely with this duology. A second fun fact is that I have written enough fan fiction with Zoya that I can type Nazielensky correctly the first time without checking, although wow. I do check every time. So I am better at typing Nazielinski <laughs> than like conscious or lightning, Ooh. which I can never seem to spell mm. correct on the first try. <laughs> Continuing along the theme of treading on JJ's domain expertise, I will provide the Zoya quote this time. She wasn't a naive girl anymore, desperately trying to prove herself at every turn. She was a general with a long body count and an even longer memory. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good quotation to describe Zoya. It kind of defines this aspect of Zoya that she is very like powerful and commanding and very intimidating. But I kind of feel like she, the core of what drives her is her vulnerable parts and like her childhood when she was a naive girl and reacting to that. And it is what makes her really aggressive and confident and a little bit intimidating. And so I think joining those two things together is a pretty good way to encapsulate a lot about Zoya. I do think Bardugo occasionally just does this incredibly with characters and now I'm trying to think I can only think of some character descriptions but she'll just have like a sentence or two that completely nails a character in a really poetic way and this definitely feels like that for Zoya. It makes your job as quote finder much easier right JJ? (laughs) Especially when Kat finds them for me. (laughs) (laughs) Research assistant. (laughs) So should we talk about Zoya's role in the original trilogy and maybe even season one of the Netflix show? Yeah, because I think talking about Zoya in the Shadow and Bone trilogy and Zoya in the recent duology are like two different things entirely. In the Shadow and Bone trilogy, she starts off as the classic mean girl. She is like 
the bully to Alina who makes fun of her for her country background, for being an orphan. She's clearly very intimidated or at least very jealous of Alina's status in the Darkling's eyes and her affinity for, for power and tries to sort of bring her down. She's Alina's enemy and very reluctantly goes over to Lena's side, or at least it takes something really major to make her change allegiances. And even when she is on Alina's team, she's still very prickly. <laughs> she's still very angry and a little bit hard to get along with, and eventually kind of reveals like a soft center and is you know, is a friend of Alina's by the end of the trilogy, but I think it took a long road to get her there. I was actually going to ask, do you two think that the evolution of Zoya from who we were first introduced to at the beginning of the trilogy to who we see towards, you know, the second duology is realistic? I mean, I I never want to underestimate what a massive amount of trauma can do to someone's personality or their relationships. You know, one of the things... Well, now maybe this is getting a little far ahead of ourselves. But one of the things that did surprise me a little bit about the King of Scars duology, can we call it like the Dragon Queen duology while we're referring to it? Yeah. <laughs> Zoya's duology is kind of how fond of Elena she is in her internal monologue and how really loving she is in a way where she is not that either verbally or even mentally with really anyone else. You know, she cares a lot, right? She cares so much about Nina. And even in her internal monologue, a lot of that is redirected at being hard on herself for failing Nina. But Alina, she really seems to have this soft spot for, which I found surprising. I think it was actually somewhat similar to the soft spot she seems to have for Genya, at least in her internal monologue, which also surprised me. And that one she kind of explains as a, hey, we've been working together in this triumvirate for like the past few years and became really close. But I was also really taken aback in the second duology when we get her internal monologue, how fond of Alina she seems to be. Because when we left off the trilogy, at least from Alina's perspective, that seemed like a stretch. You know, I do think Zoya evolves a lot in a way that is really intriguing, but I would argue, you know, her allegiances shift a lot from the first trilogy to the second duology. Obviously, she's no longer on the side of the Darkling, and she's kind of dealing with a lot, reconciling. She's very interested in killing the Darkling. (laughs) (laughs) She's extremely interested in killing the Darkling, yes. But, you know, I think she, to some extent, a lot of her character is very consistent with who she was in in the first trilogy but we get to see her in her monologue and that's very revealing but I think maybe to Alina and Jenya you know they would still view her as kind of scary and intimidating we see her behave differently towards the end of the duology with with Nikolai but up through then a lot of the people who she kind of has this inner monologue of loving are not people she has to or can deal with regularly. They're at a distance, and so she can kind of practice this. You know, loving her aunt was someone she saw occasionally, and of course now she, you know, her aunt is dead. And she sees Alina occasionally, but is able to maybe rehearse or like practice this so her loving muscle doesn't get completely atrophied. I think the other thing about Zoya from the original trilogy that struck me is that she was really set up to be the anti-Alina in a sense to me and be everything that Alina was not. For example, she was really powerful. She was already in control of her summoning and obviously Alina struggled quite a bit in the first book to be able to summon. She was incredibly confident, which is something that Alina constantly struggled with, or at least you know externally what we saw of her in the first trilogy. She's really popular, had friends who maybe also didn't really like her. There was like some weird situation <laughs> there. She's sexually active, and Alina, remember, is set up to be the super pure person who'd, like, barely kissed before. And she's really beautiful, and Alina is, like, sickly because she can't summon, use her power. So it really felt like, we talk about this sometimes, that there's this, like, you know, mean girl trope that Zoya was meant to play, at least initially. And I think a lot of that trope relies on the character being the exact opposite in all the things that the your main protagonist wants to be. Yeah. And we can get more into this later when we talk about 
the second duology, but what's really interesting to me is that Lee Bardugo sets her up as this person who's really confident, beautiful, seems to have everything going for her except maybe her anger management <laughs> issues, and then has to kind of deconstruct that to make her a more sympathetic protagonist later on. Yeah. Well, and then in, in the King of Scars duology, she's almost the anti-Darkling in a lot of ways, too. So we can deconstruct Ooh, that also. But, I cannot yeah. believe it took us minutes into this podcast about Zoya to mention the fact that she is extremely beautiful and canonically yeah. <laughs> that is impressed upon us all the time. If nonstop. Nonstop. So beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. Every time she's mentioned for the first time in a book or it's been a while, there is like a comment about how beautiful she is. So even in Six of Crows, when Zoya's reintroduced or retalked about for the first time, they quote her as being gorgeous to the point of absurdity. <laughs> it's like something that no matter what, we constantly hear about how beautiful she is. I think that was something that the Netflix show really nailed also, that Zoya was spectacularly gorgeous. I actually think the other, the only other thing to say about the Netflix show right now is that it felt like they were already setting up Zoya to be more of a sympathetic character compared to the first book. You're right, Kat, because I do think there is that scene where, you know, the Darkling, after Alina flees, and the Darkling is just, like, super moody, and, you know, she's trying to be like, oh, can I distract you? And the Darkling, you know, just rejects her pretty brutally. And you, you, you kind of see her feelings get hurt. You see her display that vulnerability, and it gives that insight into, you know, what's kind of driving her cruelty. Yeah, I think the fact that we get to see that scene, God, I was so happy that we saw the Zoya Darkling <laughs> scene, that we saw a Zoya Darkling scene. But I think that was so revealing of her. And, you know, as we've discussed in other episodes, in the book, I, I didn't necessarily believe Zoya and the Darkling was a thing, even casually. But I think her reaction in those scenes in the Netflix show was absolutely 100% how I imagined Zoya. That was such a good look into her character. A lot of the subsequent scenes, like the fighting on the skiff and all that stuff where she really starts, you see her switching sides in a way where it feels less abrupt since you see more of her perspective going in there. She definitely felt a lot more sympathetic by the end of by the end of the season and the show to me. I think that's really interesting that you both think that the scene where the Darkling rejects her advances was one that made her more sympathetic. I actually kind of assumed that they'd done it almost to the opposite effect, where the goal was to make her look like a little bit desperate and like thirsty, especially in comparison to like right then at that point, you're rooting for the Darkling and Alina still. Yeah, I see and then that. When you see a woman get rejected in TV, it's like pretty rare and it's usually like really embarrassing and like because it's depicted as a rare event, like men are always horny or down, whatever, that it's supposed to be like really bad for Zoya. I see that. I think that scene kind of functions in two ways. I think it shows that Zoya is being overconfident where she thinks she can just distract the Darkling by, you know, sleeping with him. And, you know, as someone that we've been rooting against so far, it's kind of fun to see her getting taken down a peg. But I think that scene to me watching it, you kind of see the Darkling sleeping with someone much younger than him, like not... <laughs> Literally, no contest. Yeah. Well, sleeping with someone that there's a huge power differential, right? And he just casts aside her feelings and is really brutal and rude to her. And so, yeah, she gets taken down. But you also you enjoy it. But then you kind of reflect and you're like, this is kind of fucked up. Like, I don't know. Maybe maybe there are reasons she's being an awful person, and some of them have to do with the way that she's being treated. I think. You know, showing Zoya as thirsty and desperate is not necessarily endearing, but it is an important part of her character that we see in the King of Scars duology, or in in that quote that we started with, right, where she wasn't a naive girl anymore, desperately trying to prove herself at every turn. There was another quote. I hate looking back and knowing how easy I was to manipulate. And I think it's Jenya who says, hungry for love and full of pride. And Zoya replies, was I that obvious? <laughs> you know, and I, I think it does do a good job of showing that, which sets it up so that when she actually switches sides, it feels a little bit different. 
Interesting. I'm really curious how people who watched the show first without having read the books interpreted that scene because I'm right there with you, Anjali, having read them and being a big Zoya fan. Super curious. So if you're a show only watcher or you watch the show first, please feel free to leave a comment or send us a note. I'd love to hear what you thought. Should we talk about the second or first duology? Yeah. So Zoya makes an appearance in the Six of Crows duology. And I think I mentioned it before, but it's worth saying repeatedly that when Zoya and Nikolai and Jenya showed up, I literally screamed. I was so excited. <laughs> I could not hold it in. I think I scared the crap out of my husband. But <laughs> I, it was a very exciting moment for me when they showed up. Yeah, it's like a power trio. We saw Zoya in the duology way before we actually saw her because Nina thinks about her a lot and they talk about her a little bit. And one of the things that I really loved in the duology is how Zoya is the monster that Fjordans warn their kids about. And she's really kind of passed into legend in that way. And from Nina's perspective, Zoya was an intimidating commander, but was someone who Nina respected and who Nina wanted to think highly of her, even if sometimes Nina would run off and and go do her own thing. It is very clear from Nina's perspective in the Six of Crows duology how much getting captured was her fault. And so it's interesting to see from Zoya's perspective in the next duology how much Zoya views Nina's capture as her own fault, as Zoya's fault. Yeah, I really love the difference in perspective when reading the books between how Nina and Zoya see that incident. I also just kind of loved, I almost laughed at Nina's like reverence for Zoya and the way she would mention her because I think of Nina as the most uninhibited, confident, bold character. Yes, who's just not scared of anything. But then talk about Zoya and she's just, you know, shaking in fear. And I I had to laugh at that, that there's no one that Zoya doesn't intimidate somehow. (laughs) Let's talk about the second duology, the Zoya duology. Yeah. When I read the description of King of Scars and realized it was a book about Zoya and Nikolai, I will admit I was not excited because I did not like Zoya that much in the first trilogy. You know, she grew on me a little bit, but she was still kind of just a mean character and I wasn't that excited to read more. I was excited about getting to hear more about Nikolai because Nikolai is amazing and he's hilarious and Zoya, well, funny, you know, just seemed kind of cruel to me. And we referred to this before, but Lee Bardigo did a masterful job in this duology of making you care so much and root so much for Zoya, for really showing who she is Mm -hmm. behind that tough skin and what drives her and, you know, making you love Zoya. I mean, Zoya is one of my favorite characters now. And yeah, it's just great writing. Lee is always so good at taking the villains and like once you get some perspective out of them, making them people you root for. I don't know if you caught that, JJ, but Anjali said something about beneath her tough skin and I definitely thought of Dragon Zoya when she said it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, when I was looking forward to King of Scars coming out and it was going to be Nikolai and Zoya, I envisioned an extremely different duology than the one that we got. I was going in with the impression that their relationship would be a little bit more like Kaz and Inej, you know, in the sense where I didn't think Nikolai was going to still have a demon. I thought the demons would be metaphorical. And that it would be a lot more about two deeply traumatized people healing together Mm. and doing the work together. And that was what I expected. And, you know, we get some of that. We get a lot more magic in there than, than I had been expecting. But mostly I was like, oh, Zoya and Nikolai, the banter is going to be amazing. And truly, that did not disappoint. Oh my god, the banter. I mean, I would read these books time and time again for the banter between Zoya and Nikolai is A+. I am not going to get too much into the Zoya and Nikolai relationship because I don't know if we want to do a separate episode. I feel like we have so much Mm -hmm. Zoya stuff that I'm actually not going to touch the relationship. One of the things we learn about Zoya in the King of Scars duology is her truly horrific backstory. And this involves, as a, a child, her parents are not getting along well and her family is very poor. And so her mom decides when she is nine to sell her to a very wealthy man as his bride. This is 
a horrific backstory. And I, I wish it had been less horrific. I wish it had been a little bit less tragic. She, as a character, she has so much trauma that kind of adding in, you know, from our perspective, right? This is new in, in this duology, like adding in this piece of information felt almost like too much to me. And strangely, in, in this duology, also a little bit too similar to a lot of the backstories that the female characters have. Inej has a happier family life, but she is also trafficked. Genya is, to some extent, trafficked. It becomes really a pattern with the female characters, and it felt a little bit too much to me. I agree. I mean, personally, I'm just kind of over gratuitous violence against women in fiction. I feel like there's enough in real life that I don't want it in my escape, you know, fiction anymore. That might be kind of a simplistic view, but I also didn't think it particularly added to Zoya as a character. Like, it kind of felt to me like it was a shortcut to make her more likable right away since she, you know, we ended the first trilogy with her being like this really scary, intimidating, confident anti-Alina character. And how do you quickly try and turn that around to make her more sympathetic? Give her a horrific backstory. I'm going to take a, a different stance. It's not that I enjoy Zoya's backstory. I also wish there was less sort of sexual violence uh, against a lot of the female characters in this book. It is a bit disheartening. But I, I do think it adds something to Zoya's character in that, you know, one of the things that is very synonymous with Zoya that we've mentioned is her beauty. And she's constantly complimented and she has men vying after her for mainly her looks. And, you know, I think to in the first book, we would see her beauty as power and a weapon and something that gives her a boost in life. But you can think about Zoya receiving those compliments not actually feeling them as compliments, but things that hurt her, that reminder of her past, or that her worth to her parents was just her beauty. Yeah, that's a fair point, that if we are to believe that she's like absurdly beautiful, that it may have had consequences at some point for her too, that weren't ones she would have wanted. Yeah, there is a quote that uh, I finally found that goes along with a little bit of this, which is, She'd made men fall in love with her before when she was young and cruel and liked to test her power. She did not desire, she was desired, and that was the way she liked it. And I think the mm. turning, right, she really did this. She's like, rather than letting this hurt me, I'm going to use it as a weapon. And, you know, we, yeah. we don't know kind of exactly at what point in her life that she was able to make that switch. But by the time we see her, almost certainly, she knows how to use her beauty as a weapon. One more tool in her impressive kid. Yeah. I think it's also gives some insight into why her relationship with Nikolai is takes so long to come to fruition. They're both very hesitant with each other to actually make any real steps. And we can get into this in a, a later episode, maybe a Nikolai episode or something like that. But you know, Nikolai does pay her a lot of very witty and funny compliments, but a lot of them have to do with her stunning, deadly beauty. And if those are most of the compliments that you're getting from somewhere, you know, I sense that Zoya wants something more or wants something, you know, that really shows like a connection to her as a person. And I'm not saying that Nikolai doesn't care about the underlying Zoya. I think he very deeply does. But I think that's probably at least some of her reluctance to show any vulnerability towards him. I will say that in preparation for this episode, I searched Archive of Our Own for Zoya Count Kirigan fan fiction, and I did not find any. <laughs> oh my god. I was very disappointed. Is this a new niche for you to expand into? But, <laughs> extremely niche, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we should talk about her relationship with Nikolai some other time because there's a lot mm -hmm. to get into there. But maybe what you're kind of alluding to is that in some ways, Count Kirigan and Nikolai are not so different, at least on the surface level. Mm -hmm. So if Zoya's into Nikolai, like, you know, is it so far-fetched to think she could go for Count Kirigan after would all? It, he would have been such a... Yeah, we should discuss this in depth on the Zoya Nikolai <laughs> podcast yes. episode because, yes. yeah, I wonder if he's even the safer choice. Ooh, bold. Yeah. So what, one of the main themes that we really see in this King of Scars duology is that Zoya feels that she doesn't deserve love. It straddles the line between not deserving 
and not being able to handle love. We've talked a little bit about how she really shies away from having a lot of these direct connections and really opening herself up. And one of the lines that is used over and over is what Juris tells her, which is, you are strong enough to survive the fall. And here I'll posit that part of that is falling in love and opening herself up to that sort of fall. Like, sure, he was talking about falling off the back of a dragon, but we all know this comes up in other instances. And and I think it's really, we get to see her go from this really closed off, her inner monologue expressing love and affection very hesitantly to really opening herself up to to the idea and to the fact of love. Yeah. Why do you think she so feels like she doesn't deserve love? I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one is definitely her childhood, where her love from her mother and father is like very, how would you describe it? Like it's almost transactional. It's very dysfunctional. It's somewhat transactional sometimes. And I think that's not really like a stable, she doesn't have that stable affection, right, from her childhood. She has it from her aunt, but she barely gets to see her. And you know, it's not a great foundation for emotional health. And then I think she's also carrying a lot of guilt for her actions with the Darkling. And, you know, how could someone so who did such terrible things, who enabled such terrible things, like, really ever deserve something good? I think that's something she's grappling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she sees a lot of darkness in herself, to your point. And that, in my opinion, is why she feels so undeserving of love, especially because she looks at Nikolai and she sees him as someone who's like really full of hope and light and life and like this like genuinely good person. And I don't think she thinks of herself that way. No, not at all. Yeah, I think she definitely has a perspective where love is pain. We see that with her parents' relationship, right? Her mom keeps going, this is what love is. Isn't that, that's right, you know? This is what love does, maybe? This is what love does, thank you. Thank you, Kat. You've been doing your homework. Quotes. (laughs) Yeah, research assistant, Um, I'm here. And, you know, so she sees that with her parents and then she loved her parents and is betrayed by them. Mm -hmm. She loved her aunt and her aunt is killed by the other person who she loved. All of these experiences of love just hurt her in all sorts of different ways. And I wouldn't rule it out where she even feels like she kind of like jinxed or like somehow cursed her aunt by loving her. All these other people who she loves hurt her so much, hurt other people, did terrible things to other people. And so I I wonder if there's some of that at play. Since we brought this up briefly, do we want to talk about whether we think Zoya is a good person? Should I start as the big Zoya fan? (laughs) I definitely think she is. I also do like that she's more morally gray than some of the other characters, major characters in this series who can really root for. Like one of the worst things Alina did was like snap at Bagra or even like kind of hold her power over (laughs) Zoya. And those were like some of her like worst things, quote unquote. And Zoya on the other hand was like the right hand person to the Darkling for several years at least of his reign and clearly you know has this body count behind her so it's like much less of a obviously good character than an Alina for example is or even Alina I guess to Alina's credit she does let all those people on the skiff die so I think that's kind of her big (laughs) to Alina's credit not in the show though light murder Revisionist history in the show where it wasn't right, her but fault. the map She's makers still all good her in the show, but we yeah, never have to deal true. with that. That's true. I, I have seen it brought up online. I can't remember. This was so long ago, so I can't credit the person who um, posed this question. But I think I saw it on Reddit, where people were wondering how good is Zoya really if her major impetus for changing sides for realizing that the darkling was crazy and evil was because her aunt died and nothing before that caused her to be like hey no don't do this like you know it had to be something so selfishly connected to her i was wondering what you guys think about that i guess it's hard for me to know what else the darkling had done in front of her that was overtly bad because the king Nikolai's father also seemed like this terrible character so if she knew that he was being poisoned or that the Darkling was trying to stage a coup I don't think it's 
if I were in her shoes, I don't think I would have realized that, hey, this is, you know, really messed up. Like she may have been still sold along on the the dark lane is going to raise all of us Grisha up and make us safe if he takes over. The king is bad. Let's get rid of him. Mm-hmm. I think maybe okay. some of that argument is coming from the way that Zoya phrases it is not that, hey, he killed a town full of my country people. It's he killed my aunt, <laughs> like very specifically, yeah, yeah. like he killed my aunt. And she kind of leaves out all the other hundreds of people that died at the same time. Which also makes me wonder if he had like given her a heads up and she were able to move her aunt out, if she would have I wonder him. that so much. That's the question. I think that in the original trilogy, and especially in the duology, Zoya is dragged into being a good person, sort of kicking and screaming. <laughs> Not that she's like an actively bad person, but I think it is very much an open question. Even after having read the King of Scars duology, if her aunt had not died, what would she have done? W- would she have stayed on the Darkling side? And, you know, I think what what we see of her, <laughs> we've talked a little bit about the Darkling's leadership skills. I would like to talk a little <laughs> bit about Zoya's leadership skills because she does not seem like a good general. Like, her banter is great. She's hilarious. I find her very funny. And this looks like such terrible leadership to me. She's nasty to everyone all the time. And, you know, we see her in her monologue. And so we have this benefit, kind of like we do with Kaz, of understanding more what's going on. But I don't think that would make her pleasant to be around. And I think we really see with the dragon omniscience at the end of Rule of Wolves that she's really being forced to consider other people and other people's feelings in a way she would definitely prefer not to. And (laughs) to me, that's a little, whether someone is good or not, I think is almost, it's a little reductive as a way to, you know, categorize them. But she definitely, it doesn't seem to be her first impulse. That doesn't seem to be the sort of person she's trying to build herself into. It seems to be the sort of person she is forced into being. I guess I'm still considering the, the, like, is Zoya a good person, as simplistic and reductive as that is? And I, I think she's, like, been on a journey, certainly. Like, I still think she is a very cruel person. And this duology gives us a lot of insight into what drives that. And it makes us very sympathetic, I think. Like, she's hilarious, but those words hurt people and they make them scared of her. And that's kind of not okay. You know, it's entertaining. But if I were anyone else in the room, I wouldn't like her necessarily. But I think also like, she did a lot of bad things under the Darklings leadership. And I forgive her for that because I think you can really get caught up in the hero worship of someone and not realize the bigger picture of what's happening. But I think being tormented by that guilt of like constantly analyzing your actions and and punishing yourself for it, maybe not healthy. I think that's like, you know, what gets her to be a good person. Because I think like someone like Alina who you know, for the most part is pretty good and doesn't really have anything to beat herself up for. It's very easy to stray off that path. Like, I feel like your compass can kind of skew if you're just like good for the sake of standards. But I feel like if you've made mistakes and you actively like remind yourself of that mistake always, that's kind of what will actually ensure that you're... I think that what sets her up for being like a good leader in the end, for being a leader who's accountable. So I'm laughing about the leadership question because there's a quote. Zoya found herself snapping at everyone even more than usual. She knew the talk was that she was in one of her moods, but the perks of ruling included permission not to slather her words in honey. She did her job. She did it well. If her students and servants and fellow Grisha couldn't endure a few curt replies in exchange, they were in the wrong damn country. <laughs> and I just love that mixture in that quote is both her like totally fine kind of being a bitch as a leader, but also that she th- is like really confident in her competence and her leadership skills. Like she's saying she does her job and she's doing it well. So either there's some like real mismatch in her own self-awareness or maybe there's something about Robkin culture where this just works well. 
Yeah, I, I think it's possible that the Grishaverse has different leadership rules, as evidenced by everyone seeming to believe that Darkling's an incredible leader. <laughs> and now Zoya's <laughs> firm belief in her own leadership abilities and or there's just a lot of stuff off page that we're really not seeing here. So there were a few times, I think, where she displayed some really good leadership skills. Like, I think it's with Adric, for example, when he loses an arm, she's the only one who still treats him normally, mm-hmm. and he really appreciates that about her as a leader and as a teacher. Is that it? No, we don't have any more examples of good leadership. I guess so she turns into a dragon and to... saves all of Ravka. <laughs> what a leader. I mean, I think the only really good example of leadership we've had has been Nikolai. This is not a Nikolai episode, but hopefully Zoya's picked up a lot from being so close to him and around him all the time when he was king. Yeah, we, we see her occasionally pick up some of the charm or be able to turn it on because she has been paying attention. Yeah. So basically, I think she's not the best leader that we've seen in the Grishaverse, but she has potential. Again, this goes back to her being thrust into it. I think being omniscient is really going to help with being a good leader. If she uses that to her advantage, like that will significantly help. So by the end of the Zoya duology, what do we still not understand about her? I think one that struck me in the very beginning of the duology is why had she and Nikolai never hooked up? Like Zoya from the end of the first trilogy was and in the show, was pretty open about her sexuality. Like she'd approached Mal, supposedly had approached the Darkling, at least according to show lore, and had never really been shy about being a sexual being. So why not her and Nikolai ever at some point? They have that exchange where one of them says, growing up means learning to go without. It's not so bad. Starve long enough, you forget your hunger. And then Nikolai says, if it's so easy to lose your appetite, maybe you were never truly hungry at all. And it definitely sounded to me like they were talking about them, talking about sex, talking about kind of this whole broad thing. I mean, they're definitely not talking about real hunger because that's not true at all. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so that's the sort of thing a prince would say. But uh, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that, you know, it seemed like such a such an obvious thing for them to have done that I certainly wanted more of an explanation as to what was keeping them apart rather than potentially having feelings for each other. So it's possible the Alina relationship with Nikolai kept Zoya from hooking up with him for quite some time, especially because we see how fond she is of him. Maybe she considered him somewhat off limits or at least thought that he was still hung up on Alina. What's that What's that quote at the end of Ruin and Rising? I'm, I'm not going to get it quite right, but when Alina, you know, has the Lance of Emerald and she's like, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And Zoya's like, you know, toss him over, break his heart cruelly. I will be there to comfort him. <laughs> I love how Anjali's face lit up when you mentioned the <laughs> Emerald. <laughs> I, of course, remember this scene and this line perfectly because it involves the Emerald. <laughs> All right, so that's a mystery. Maybe related to Alina, maybe not. Yeah. I what mean, else? I think it gives them some banging sexual tension throughout the duology, and that may be the real reason. <laughs> well, definitely the real reason, but yeah, I'm just like, oh, it, it kind of reminded me of when we talked about show Alina and Mal, it was like very unclear why they weren't together yet. Yeah, I mean, there were some other sort of open questions for me like some of them were more tactical like i did not understand why zoya was in charge of finding nikolai a bride other than the (laughs) obvious sexual tension which i have to assume was the reason but i don't think typically a military general is in charge of that although i'm not an expert in monarchies or militaries i think you're probably right (laughs) but what about the zoya of the garden aspect which we haven't touched on yet So she has this secret garden that is where she has a plant for each of the Grisha who have been killed. And this seems to start from pretty early, like all of the Grisha who we met, who Zoya knew, who died, are are represented in this garden, including some of the ones who she thinks are dead but are actually not like Nina. So she goes to this garden every night. And it is, upon rereading, we see it vaguely foreshadowed where Nikolai's always like, why do you smell like wildflowers? But it, it's really not 
Because you're in love with her. <laughs> yeah, that, that was kind of much more the assumption. I, I thought it was a little bit more of a metaphor than an actual, I spend every night in a garden. Yeah, it struck me. I still don't quite buy it. It seems almost a little overly nostalgic is maybe the term. I don't know. What What do you think? I mean, I thought it was just a way to like a reification of her guilt and grief, you know, that we've talked about earlier how she feels responsible for being on the Darkling side, but I think she partially feels responsible for all these debts. And yes, she misses these people probably, but she wants to memorialize them because she feels responsible for their debts because she was on the side that killed them at one point. There's actually a really good quote, and you pulled it out again, JJ, that I love related to this, which was, brief was the shadow love left when it was gone. And even when reading that, it really struck a chord with me as, you know, as probably most of us having lost loved ones in my life, having that sense of grief and then seeing it reframed as a, hey, this is a, like, just a reminder, it like lets you know that there's like real love and that having it left behind means something I thought was really powerful. And I think that's exactly like Anjali was saying, supposed to be like really depicted in a very like visual or literal sense with Zoya's garden. Like that moment when she gives Nina her flower at the end of the duology. I loved that. Yeah. That was a beautiful mm-hmm. moment. And Nina's like, what's this? And she's like, oh, you stupid girl. Or <laughs> yeah, just take it. <laughs> that was a good Bagra impression, oh, JJ. I think. Was I lying? <laughs> no, the, the, the stupid girl thing. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I don't think Nina's going to keep that flower alive, especially not in Fierda. But that flower is already sure, dead. Sure, Zoya. <laughs> was... Yeah, it's the, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> I also do think Zoya of the Garden is a very beautiful and poetic title. I would love to have that as a title that people just think of me as like Cat of the Garden. But it did feel like a little like, okay, we just want to add this beautiful title for, you know, Juris and the Dragon to refer to her as one of her many mm-hmm. titles. All right. I, so I will also say one one of the other things that still never made sense to me by the end of the duology is I do not think that Zoya would have missed Genya's wedding. Like, mm-hmm. period, full stop. Kat, as you mentioned earlier in this, Genya is one of the people who internally she's very affectionate towards. And Genya and David, the two people getting married, <laughs> are the other two members of the triumvirate. Like, her not being there is is a really big deal. And I think it, my impression was that it was done exclusively to continue to throw us off the scent of this not being Nikolai's wedding. But I I was never able to reconcile that with her character. I think the best I can do for you is say she was a general and this was a clear trade-off she was making in order to help pull off this larger ruse. I'm not talking about, sorry, not talking about the ruse on the audience, although that was, you know, the larger intended effect, but just um, tricking the shoe queen, Maki or something. Anyhow, I think it was part of the larger ruse to trick the shoe queen into attending. And as a general, she kind of made this cost benefit trade-off analysis and went for it. It's the best I can do for you. Still think it was crap. (laughs) There. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think she would miss it either. Yeah. I also don't think Jenya would let her. Yeah. Like, Jenya was the one who was planning it when we, you know, when we were led to believe it was Nikolai's wedding. She was the head planner and... (laughs) Also a typical thing for a general, right? (laughs) Wedding planning. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think Jenya would have let her. Yeah, I I agree. I think Jenya is better than many of the other characters that seen the big picture at times and would have said, you know, yes, it's great to trick the shoe queen, but there are some things that are, you know... They're only once, and missing one of your closest friend's weddings is kind of one of those. So, you know, one of the things from Zoya in this duology, and since we've loved getting into this in the past, love it, is that we can learn a little bit more about the small science from her experience being a dragon. Yes. Yay. We definitely went into some of this in the Amplifier episode. But there are a few other things that we see about the different Orders. So firstly, even to follow up from the Amplifier episode, I did look it up afterwards. It is not 100% 
like written in canon that she was able to access other summoning powers prior to merging with Juris and the Dragon, but it is heavily implied, at least in my opinion. It ends the chapter where Juris is pushing her to do that with her opening the door, going through her own back memories. So I, at least as a reader, I was left with the impression that she was already able to. Yeah. So the boundaries that we see her clearly crossing are all of the etheralki. So she does, you know, she's a squalor. She does some tide making or references being able to do it. And we... Yep. Inferni is mm-hmm. referenced where, you know, it talks about like the dragon part of it prior to her yeah. true bonding. Yeah. And then we also see her doing some fabricator work, which is how she kills Elisabetta. And what is less clear is if she does anything explicitly corporalki based. I think the closest thing I remember was, you know, with her dragon eyes, she can kind of feel what people are feeling, which, you know, feelings are a physical sort of thing. I didn't know if that counted. Do we see her do anything else in that order? Does shape-shifting into a dragon, that seems, <laughs> if you were going to put it into one of the orders, it seems closest <laughs> to Corporalki. It, it does. It does indeed. So one of the things that I did think was interesting as she's kind of crossing these boundaries is one thing that is never mentioned in this duology is that she never for a minute considers summoning sun or shadow. And mm. she goes through all of the other summoning orders. And it's something where we see her kind of internal thoughts about how, oh, she had the Tidemakers do it. She could, but it'd be too hard. But we never see that when there are the Sun Soldiers keeping the Darkling at bay. And even when she's alone with the Darkling, she doesn't try to summon sunlight. And she never tries to summon darkness. And to me, that is certainly suggestive that she may know that she cannot because those are totally different things Mm. as we've gone into you know are those actually part of the small science or not put on your tinfoil hat i think that's great evidence that the darkling and alina are not truly grisha there's something other yeah i would love to see that explored further I guess the question besides when she's confronting the Darkling, are there other moments where we particularly think Sun or... I mean, when she's walking to the garden in the dark, <laughs> like, you know, she could have like lit her way. I think Sun is broadly useful darkness, I'm less sure about. Although if she can make herself invisible with both of those, I would think there are a lot of times where she might have decided to like nope out of a meeting she was in with Nikolai and Count Kirigan or something. Honestly, I think that if she um, tried to summon (laughs) darkness at any point, it would have been a very big emotional moment for her. And so the fact that we don't see that means that she never tried. Yeah. That is a great point that you just made, Anjali, because I think for Zoya, we can't actually maybe overly infer from her not trying because Alina and the Darkling have such outsized roles at least in her mind or how she perceives them that maybe she was just like even if she thought she was physically capable of it emotionally she would never i I would expect to see her thinking about that though i think it's absence in her inner thoughts Uh, obviously she's thinking a lot of things that we don't see but that does feel like a notable absence to me so so maybe that leads into kind of the next question of will Zoya turn into the Darkling? Because, you know, I mentioned earlier she set a little bit up as an anti-Darkling in some ways, but there are a lot of ways in which she's really similar by the end of the duology in some sort of obvious ways in that they're both immortal. They both have a lot of power. She got hers less from kind of maneuvering towards it. It was a little bit more thrust on her. And I'm there I'm talking about like political power. But of course, they both have this incredible Grisha power as well. Mm-hmm. And we know, we really know that she is afraid of turning into the Darkling, right? And we, we see that a lot because all she wants to do is kill him all the time and he shouldn't yes. be around and he can't be trusted. And, you know, we definitely know that. And in fact, when someone says that, uh, tells her that killing the Darkling is her answer to everything, she says, how do we know if we don't try? Uh, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> but there was there were a couple other 
things that struck out at me as similar. So there, there was one quote from her point of view chapter, which is, but maybe that was the trick of it, to survive, to dare to stay alive, to forge your own hope when all hope had run out. And to me, that sounded so darkling. That sounded so much like what we see of him and his backstory. And then at the very end, she says, Jenya, will you find Alina before she vanishes with her tracker? Her tracker? Ooh. Zoya wow. slept Oof. with Mal in the first book. And Ooh. now he's her tracker. She's not even using his name, just like the Darkling. Ooh, that, that's probably your most compelling piece of evidence for me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> We we see the Darkling even seeing this in her, right? He tells her, beware of power, Zoya. There's no amount of it that can make them love you. And there are a number of times when it feels like he's kind of giving this new immortal a little bit of advice. But he's also not worried. He's not threatened. Yeah, I guess I don't put too much stock (laughs) in his what he says ever. Um, so I think he just knows that this is a fear of hers and is going to play it up. So if like Nikolai said that, then I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, let's like really think about, you know, did he mean this? Has he experienced this himself? The Darkling saying it, I'm like, eh, he, he knows what she's scared of. And he's really just trying to play into that. Well, you know, the Darkling, all he ever wanted was Ravka to love him. So <laughs> his biggest insecurity as well. <laughs> great parallel good job (laughs) yes so there are a lot of parallels between them and i think she is very cognizant of them she's constantly worried about what will happen to her and i think one of the interesting parts of the duology is her not wanting to open the door quote unquote and embrace the full power and that is probably the biggest difference between her and the darkling and her and alina even where Alina was all about hunting down the sea whip, hunting down the firebird. Yeah, and Zoya just gets the most powerful amplifier ever thrown into her lap. Right, and she doesn't even want it, but he's like, no, finish me off so you can go take care of Yeah, Elizabeth. you know, I think there's... I think Zoya is set up to not become the Darkling because of her amplifier, because of the dragon's eye empathy thing. Yes. I think that's how we know... And I guess how she knows that she will not ultimately turn into the Darkling is she's just able to feel what other people are feeling. And she she feels too much. She's kind of opened herself up to that feeling in the way where it seemed like the Darkling doesn't really have that many feelings at this point. Can she turn it off, though? I think still, that that's or? part of like, that's part of the whole bit of like opening herself up, which she kind of surrenders to by the end, I feel like. And... I will say a little bit that the dragon's eye empathy thing felt like cheating to me (laughs) to keep her Mm. from becoming the Darkling. Like a little OP? What's OP? Overpowered. Oh. Gaming talk. Oh, (laughs) well. (laughs) Well, so it, it seemed like if Alexander had the ability to kind of feel what other people were feeling and had the dragon's eye empathy when he was young, he would have turned out very differently. And so essentially what we're doing is keeping Zoya from turning into the Darkling by giving her this thing that essentially says you're guaranteed to never enjoy or care too little about hurting other people. Right. I see that. Yeah. I kind of also see it as, you know, I think one thing that is repeated a lot in the duology is Zoya's fear of turning into the Darkling. And I think that Fear and like her conscience, which we also hear about, are really the things that will motivate her to try to keep herself from turning into the Darkling. And the dragon's eye empathy is the tool she can use to do that. I also think it's, I get the sense, like we were just talking about, it's not something she can turn off, turn on anymore. For example, at the end of the duology, she's like sensing the Darkling's pain while he's being tortured by the tree. I think that scene towards the end where she's empathizing and feeling his pain is also supposed to suggest like this is going to keep her accountable even if she doesn't want to like she probably didn't want to actually feel his pain like she was still afraid of him still afraid of becoming him didn't want to you know face him and to still have this connection an an unwanted connection is the same with her and probably the rest of her kingdom should we lightning round it lightning round let's do it All right, what are your thoughts on Zoya as a character? You know, I like Zoya. She's 
really intriguing as a character. I think she has so much depth. I think she has a lot of growth in this whole series. She's someone that I didn't want to like and came to like, and she's confident and powerful and a badass. It's awesome. I do... And absurdly beautiful. Don't and forget. And absurdly beautiful, <laughs> yes. I don't love that her defenses include so much verbal cruelty. That will always kind of prevent her from being my top echelon of characters. But, I mean, yeah. as an actual character, she's so well-written and so fun to read. We didn't actually get into this at all, but how did you feel about her being half Suli? Oh, yeah. The big reveal in the second duology. Sorry to throw this in at the very end in a lightning round. It's really... I almost felt like it was a little unnecessary, just because it kind of felt like it was just there or added on, because we really didn't see this in indications of this in the first series, but it kind of felt like it was there to make her feel like another reason she wouldn't be loved by the people and another reason she right. wouldn't be accepted. And I'm all for, you know, adding diversity for various reasons, but I, I kind of felt like that was what it was shortcutting. And I feel like there was already enough with her being a Grisha and her being bad at, you know, feeling feeling confident and being loved to get there. It, and her it didn't backstory. Seem, yes, and her backstory. That it didn't totally seem necessary to me. Right. Yeah, I would say I came for the banter and I stayed for the badassery. I mean, she's definitely, I love watching her kick butt and really be in control. I enjoy her banter a lot. I would be really curious in a future book to see her character from exclusively from other people's point of view. And so how does she develop and how does that kind of hold up when we're not inside of her head anymore yeah. I, I really love to see that growth from an external perspective to kind of round it out yeah probably no surprises here i love zoe as a character earlier angela you said you went into the second duology not expecting to like her or still being kind of eh on her as a character i think it was similar for me but the way that she was presented. I loved that mixture of the high confidence kind of badassery on the outside, questionably competent as a leader. We don't, you know, still open to debate, but then also, you know, a lot of interesting and real insecurities on the inside, like her internal monologue. I liked that dynamic because I think a lot of times there are characters where their internal monologue is, you know, really revealing that they're not confident in themselves or blah, blah, blah. And a lot of it feels like a totally unjustified with Zoya it felt justified yeah you know she does have a lot of flaws she is petty she is vengeful you know she does have this like dark history with the dark lane and to see that explored with her still being able to do her job I liked that into it are you ready for this week's kiss I Mary kill suspense all right so we are going to do Zoya Alina Nina no, Yo. that's so mean. <laughs> Can I just marry them all? Kiss, Mary chef. Okay, you've named my top three characters. I mean, I didn't put Nikolai in there if it's helpful. Yeah. Okay, I, I have an answer for you. I am going to kiss Zoya because I have a feeling she's an incredible kisser. Hundred. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, Defo. And... I will kill Alina as much as it pains me because, you know, I think she kind of already died in the eyes of the country, so why not? That definitely and justifies I would... it. <laughs> sure, sure. Thanks. And then I'll marry love Nina it. because I love Nina and we both love waffles and I see a happy life for us having waffles for breakfast every day. I, too, will marry Nina because I aspire to have more waffles and especially savory waffles, which I think Nina would also be into. I will kiss Alina because she seems fine and I will kill Zoya because she cannot be killed. And so mm. I don't actually have to kill her and I found a loophole and then we all live happily ever after. I feel like you two find way more loopholes in this game than I do. <laughs> We're all about the loopholes. <laughs> so I'm actually debating between marrying and killing Zoya. It's like, you know, really different ends of the spectrum here. The reason why I'm on the like, oh, maybe I should kill her is because then we would like true amplifier bond as we mm -hmm. talked about in the last episode. So she'd still be with me in my head forever. 
maybe a little judgmental and a little bit uh, cruel less at times. But <laughs> you're forgetting how yeah. beautiful she is. <laughs> That's true. The reason why the argument for marrying her is she seems incredibly competent, super loyal. I guess they would become like the queen's consort or something. Seems great. Like, win-win. I mean, I yeah. I'm like, her connection with Nikolai... Ooh, I, we'll save this bit. I think I can get in there. <laughs> this is my confidence. This is why I bond with Zoya so much. <laughs> I'm definitely going to kiss Nina. She also seems like a really good kisser, a lot of fun to hang out with, which means I guess Selena is I, like the other side of the killer Mary. Let's say I kill her. She's had a good run, you know, and she's the one who probably is going to have the shortest life of the three of them as no longer being Grisha or other, if you will. Well, Kat, I know you also really love waffles. I can't <laughs> believe you kissed waffles for breakfast every day goodbye. It's true, but I could make some for me and Zoya if that's what it takes to win her over from Nikolai. I would do that. Daily waffles. I do think with Nina, there may be more making waffles for Nina than Nina making you waffles. <laughs> good, good point. Very good point. Honestly, I kind of feel like if I were in a relationship with Nina, I would be the Matias who'd be constantly like a little bit like, oh my God, did you just say that in public? Or like, did you just touch my butt in public? I'm so like prudish in comparison to you. Were you just talking about getting into Zoya and Nikolai's marriage though? <laughs> That's like, you know, behind the closed uh, doors, uh, not in public. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Zoya's also a little bit moody and Anjali, you know, that's kind of my type. So why not? <laughs> I do know. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us again for the first episode of season two. And if you have any feedback or ideas for us, please feel free to drop us a line at crowclubpod at gmail.com.